The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. Well, as you know, we broadcast from London on Thursday and Friday of last week, and the one thing that struck me was the lack of information that was available to the British people from either side. And and um, the, there was a lot of, you know, stuff which was no more or less misinformation from both sides. So I thought maybe we ought to have a bit of truth over here about what will happen post-Brexit. Because to be honest, in a sense, we don't care what happens to Britain, but we do deeply care about what happens to this country. So I got together... Three wise men, Donald, <coughs> excuse me, Donald Donovan, business editor of the Irish Independent, and Mick Barry, the anti-austerity alliance and people before profit TD for Cork North Central. Uh, both of them are in the studio with me, and from Brussels to Finnegal MEP Brian Hayes. Donald, if I can, if I can go first to you. Um, Billions, I heard just there in the news, wiped off Irish stocks and shares. This is another kind of Black Monday or Black Friday, but these things pass, don't they? They do. There is a a reaction happening in the markets. It happened on Friday very, very hard. There was more than $2 trillion wiped off the the paper value of of assets on Friday. It's happening very hard again today. Irish shares are having having the living daylights beaten out of them today. Bank of Ireland is way down. Ryanair is way down. Anything that's exposed to the UK market is is way, way down. The Isaac Index is is way down. It's very rough in the markets. it's it's very volatile. It's volatile falling at the moment, but that will pass. So at some point, uh, part of what's happening is that the markets had underestimated the chances of the vote going the way it went on. So Thursday. they hadn't That's factored own, it they in. They hadn't factored it in. They had kind of factored it in the previous week, funnily enough, and then they had unfactored it. That's their own fault, and they had to make up ground. And that has it. That creates its own momentum. A bad momentum as people become forced sellers. Um, but that will pass. So that's a short term thing, we think. But what is not short term? In the medium me. term, in the medium term, I think the next thing we have to worry about is the likelihood that people will either put off decisions about investment and spending, whether yeah. that's a big business, a small business, or individuals, where they whether they're going to take a holiday this year, whether they're going to put on an extension in their house this year, whether they'll buy a house this year right. in the UK. That's going to have an impact on the economy. That could well precipitate well, a recession. Hold on now. There was a fellow for the Remain campaign before Thursday and he was saying it's going to be a massive recession and house prices are going to drop and everything and, and so he was stoking all that sort of stuff up. But we cannot surely, and I want to ask you this, this will have an effect on Ireland's economy without a shadow of a doubt. Can we say that negatively? We- yeah, yeah, we we definitely can say that in the immediate term there's going to be a negative effect until people know what's going to happen. And the big problem at the moment is nobody knows what's going to happen. There isn't a, a process that we can say we're this po- at this point in the process and once well, X, we Y and Z happens, we're going to be at the, so, at the end of the process. I, I saw a fellow in England and he said Greenland, which has a population roughly the size of a crowd at a, a soccer match in the Euros, it took three years to get out. Yeah, and, and the UK is going to take much longer. Um, longer. Longer, yeah. And I think the one thing we can say with reasonable certainty is that the UK is going to leave the European Union. There's a bit of doubt being thrown around on that, I think, in the last couple of days. But I All think right. that is going to happen okay. and that we do know. The other thing I saw then, because I want to get to Mick Barry next, um, was Morgan Stanley suggesting they might bring 3,000 merchant bankers to Ireland or Frankfurt. The Law Society said they're fielding phone calls every day from solicitor firms in the UK wondering can they open up up here. Not quite. Wondering if they can register here. Now, those solicitors are still looking to work in London with an Irish registration. But anyway, like thousands coming off the boat Bankers, solicitors. Again, I wouldn't say anything happening short term. I don't think any big uh, institutions are going to make decisions until they know where this is going. Why would you make a big decision? If you want to move a trading floor from London to Dublin, for instance, the the technology involved in that could take you six, eight months, even a year to do, let alone having uh, the rest of the infrastructure. You're very cash about it. I'm worried about you, I must say. I think there are are sort of three phases we're going to go through. I think one is the current volatility where the markets are just correcting because the markets got it wrong. I think there is then this, this period of 
uncertainty that okay. there's a risk of a recession around. And third, I think long term, there's a potential for a bad deal for Ireland and that will be bad for the economy here. All right. Now, um, as I said, Deputy McBarry is with me from the People Before Profit Anti-Austerity Alliance Group. Cork North Central is your constituency. I heard Paul Murphy, uh, your colleague, say this was a working class revolution. Is that how you describe it? I'm not sure if I would describe it as a revolution, uh, George, but it's certainly a revolt. Uh, by working class people uh, in Britain and particularly in England uh, against the type of policies that have been implemented there for many, many years. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember the Thatcher years, uh, which were followed by uh, Tony Blair. Tony Blair was Labour in name, but Tory indeed. And 30 years of those policies have resulted in a situation where you've got... uh, just an incredible level of inequality within the society. I mean, there's a record number of billionaires in London now. Um, but, you know, the the UK is the home of the zero-hour contract, uh, the mining villages that were devastated, um, uh, very high levels of unemployment. Uh, and it was rejection of all of that uh, and the parties that have implemented but it. But do you not accept, though, that there was a tremendous amount of misinformation, like a lot of people, I heard them, uh, a lot of people um, who, who who were saying, you know, uh, immigration, this will stop immigrants coming in, whereas the reality of it is it probably won't. Uh, people saying that... If we leave, we'll be rich again. We'll be a rich country again, which is not necessarily true. Um, I mean, they've now got what they voted for, but it may not be what they thought they were going to get. Would you accept that at all? Yeah, I think that there was a vast amount of misinformation on both sides. Uh, In fact, I think the official uh, Remain side and the official Leave side Uh, both came out with stuff that was fairly disgusting. I mean, the focus has been on the Little Englander uh, racist element, uh, Farage, UKIP and co, uh, who uh, drummed up a a pretty disgusting anti-immigrant tune. Uh, But also, I mean, if you look at the uh, leadership of the Remain side, people like uh, David Cameron, the majority of people in the Tory cabinet, uh, they framed the debate in terms of immigrants and immigration being a problem as well. So, obviously, um, I'm not truck to, to any of that kind of politics. No, of course not. But if you, like, if you look at the vote, it's really interesting, isn't it? That, you, depending on geography, like if you're in working class areas, then, then you, get a, you get a vote. Older people voted. So you had older people and working class people on one side. You had middle class stroke professional people and young people on the other side. In Northern Ireland, you had Catholics on one side and Protestants on the other. Whatever's going to happen, this makes the UK now an extraordinarily divided country, does it not? That is true. Um, And what would have clarified things a lot... I'm not saying it would have clarified everything, but I think what would have clarified things a lot. Um, if you look at the leader of the Labour Party, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, I mean, I believe that in his heart he was a, a Leave guy. Uh, and I think if he had come out and nailed his colours to the mast and said, let's leave, he would have killed a few birds with the one stone, right? What would have happened is, number one, it wouldn't have been that close. Instead of 52-48, yeah. it would have been decisive for a leave. But it also would have changed the coloration of the leave vote. I'm not saying that immigration wouldn't have been an issue, but it would have been pushed down the agenda and it would have been far more about okay. issues like defending the NHS, defending the welfare state, stopping the race to the bottom and a left agenda. All right. Now, Brian Hayes is in Brussels. I know you want to talk to me about corporation tax, Brian Hayes, but I don't want to talk to Good. you about corporation tax. Good. No, I'm delighted, George. i tell you what I want to talk about. When I go up to Ravenhill, am I going to be able to drive up there in my car or am I going to pass through uh, border controls? Michael Noonan has said that we are now the the outer border of the United Kingdom. Isn't border control an absolute certainty? Shocked? Gone. Uh, So much for for the technology of Skype. 
What about you, Mr. Donovan of Independent Newspapers? You're, you're the business editor, Donald. Don't you think there's going to be border controls? There is a border. There's a soft border between Northern Ireland and the Republic at the moment and there used to be a hard border and I think, it, I think it's a, a big, big issue and it ought to be a massive priority for the government right now that we don't reinstate the hard border and we don't have to. I mean, it's possible to have a common travel area. We have a common travel area between the UK and Ireland and we have it. It's long-standing and it serves, us, it serves us both well. I don't think that if you were to go to either side of that border, the government's on either side of that border and say, would you like a hard border? There would be circumstances where either would say, yes, we would. Um, and, and I think that's everyone in Europe outside of these islands needs to know that. So at the moment, uh, Norway and Sweden have a soft border, the same as we have a soft well, border. Well, they haven't, they haven't. I mean, they've, Norway, Sweden and Denmark are suddenly put in. I know it's for a different reason because it's not for European migration. It's for migration because of the Syrian crisis and so on. But they aren't changing. Attitudes are hardening where borders are concerned. Not that one particular, the, the Norwegian Swedish yeah. one, but legally they've they've yeah. been able to stay outside sure. the European Across Union the and retain the and yeah. uh, well that's the the Denmark one, but the yeah. Norwegian oh, one yeah. on the other Sorry. side, yeah. Um, and I don't think we 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 shouldn't be forced to have a border. I think if it comes to it, everyone in this country needs to make sure we don't have a border. And if that's the government that has to do it, great. And if if the rest of us have to do it, then it might come to that as well. And and it might take a bit of action to keep the border open. But I, d- yeah, but Deputy Barry. Um, The thing is, isn't the nightmare scenario for for this, and it's not raising an immigration here at all, really, but I mean, aren't people uh, across Europe, isn't it very natural for Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, for probably 60% of the 27 countries, that they would see a better economic future in a place like the United Kingdom? And haven't they got a soft way of now getting into the United Kingdom by coming here first? I think you could exaggerate the possibility of that. I think you could, yeah. In fact, um, I mean, we've seen quite a bit of little Englander politicians over the last while. Uh, and I'm uh, wary of uh, little Ireland or politicians. I don't think of, we'd put in the border. I mean, I, I'm saying the British would be doing it, not us. I'm not trying to raise the hair in an Irish context. I'm saying the British would start doing it. I'm saying that uh, they weren't able to have a hard border during 30 years of the Troubles. It's not realistic to have a hard border across you know, stretching from from one end of the country to the other. Uh, And I think it's unlikely that they're going to go down that route. I I think you can see passport checks coming from the island of Ireland into the UK. But so far as... the But that makes an enormous difference, Deputy Barry. I mean, we're we're sitting here like, when did we ever... Like, we show a passport to get in the plane, but that's only identification. We go in, grab our bag, walk through. I did it on Thursday. And I must say, on Thursday, I thought... What's going to happen the next time? Mm. I mean, that would make life very difficult. Uh, it would make life relatively inconvenient, I think, on, on, the, on the plane one. I, I flew to Switzerland recently. We're outside Schengen. If you're flying from Germany into Switzerland, there you're going outside the EU, but you, there's no border, so you don't have to show your passport. I had to show my passport because I happen to be flying from outside the Schengen area. In terms of flights and things like that, I don't think it's a huge thing. It's an inconvenience. It might be an extra 10, 15 minutes. I think where it would really matter is trucks of, of goods and, and yeah. the ability to sell in services. All right. Now, I'm rejoined by technology and Brian Hayes from Brussels. Brian, we're really talking about borders. We're talking about movement then also of businesses into Ireland. Morgan Stanley are frantically denying they're going to move 3,000 to Ireland. Do you think we're going to see an influx of business first, which would be positive, clearly? Uh, But then negatively, we seem to be in agreement here, Deputy McBarry and Donald Donovan of The Independent, and we will see some kind of passport controls. Well, on the first issue, first, George, on the question of opportunities, I mean, you know, financial services in London, the reason why it exists is to have a financial passport from one area of the EU to another. If you're not in the EU, you can't passport to the other 27 member states. So that's a huge disadvantage. If you have a business and you're trying to operate that business in London, there's no doubt Ireland would be a very good place where that business could actually be operated from. But I think it's too early to say what the advantages could be in terms of additional jobs coming to Ireland. On the second issue, I think this is the real concern. If there was some kind of hard border or even a soft border with the kind of passport controls that people uh, might see, I think that would really diminish the opportunities of getting proper business and commerce going north-south. 
if there's one part of the world that needs a proper private sector economy, it's Northern Ireland. Why? Because it's still held together by about six billion of a subsidy every year by the English taxpayer. Right. And secondly, um, they have a huge number of people employed in the public sector way beyond where it should be. So it's good for Northern Ireland. It's good for Ireland as an economy if we try to have an all-Ireland approach to this. And it seems to be impossible to do that if you have one part of the island outside of the European Union. So there's big problems north and south in making sure that we can can get the destination right. All right. What's this position in the the European equivalent of the dull bar? Are 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 the are the European countries say get let's kick them out now and give them nothing, or is there an attitude which says let's try and work with them and get the best deal we can for everybody? Well, that's that'll be the key issue tomorrow because, as you know, um, the European Parliament is meeting at ten a.m. in the morning and is going to produce a resolution for the main groups. Um, I think it's split right now. If I'm very honest, there is a large number of member states, Italy. Spain, France, who are arguing that the British should now have what's called an immediate notification of Article 50, where other member states, our own country, Ireland, the Dutch, Finnish, Swedish, and the Germans, argue that they should be given some time uh, to try to work through what exactly they want to achieve. Um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I heard what Donald said earlier, he's right, economies need certainty, they need, you know, for, yeah. for small decisions and big decisions on investment. We're not going to have that if this thing is put off forever. But at the same time, they do need a bit of time because, being very frank about it, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove did not expect to see this coming. They didn't expect this would happen. They haven't a clue about the strategy they want to pursue. They now We now have a situation where the British government is rudderless. So they need a bit of time to work out what they want to do here. And then okay. they're going to have to negotiate with the EU as to what... Uh, in right. Ireland's interest and the EU's interest. Okay, Brian Hayes, Deputy McBurry again, because I know if I ask Brian Hayes this question, he'll give me a pretty predictable answer, right? He, he says there, for instance, that Johnson and Gove didn't expect it to happen, so they didn't make any plans. Isn't it reasonable to assume that we didn't think it would happen either, and our government hasn't made any plans either? Isn't that a reasonable expectation? Like, you're up there in Parliament. Would you think that's happening? Uh, I don't believe that uh, government TDs expected this to happen. Uh, If you uh, asked any of them their opinion in the last week, um, the basic line that they had was, it's going to be close, it's going to be very close, but I think it'll be carried by a narrow majority. Uh, I spoke to a government minister uh, who was just back from the UK, uh, who basically said that that was his opinion uh, having spoken to people and I just thought to myself you know did you go down to the bookie shop did you talk to uh, yeah. men who spend their day well, in there for a bit of company but, but, uh, the bookie's so, got it wrong too did, yeah but the bookie's got it wrong but but yeah. Deputy Barry because I'm going to bring Brian back in but but Deputy Barry I know you would vote if, if if you were Britain, you would have voted to leave. That's pretty obvious, given your politics. But what about if we had a referendum over here? Would you be at the van of a leave movement, for instance, or not? Uh, if there was a vote here, uh, I, I would vote to leave, but I don't think that that is uh, the issue at the moment. I think the issue at the moment is going to be uh, our working people made the whipping boys uh, for the Brexit, I see in yesterday's business post that exporters have made contingency plans for up to 60,000 uh, uh, people to have their, uh, uh, sorry, have made contingency plans for job losses and that the ESRI reckon that up to 60,000 uh, workers could have their uh, pay cut by 4 to 5%. Oh, so yeah. I, I think it's important that the, the unions and working people take a very firm attitude of saying uh, we're not going to pay for this in terms of a, a single job or a single pay cut. Yeah, but uh, Brian Hayes, that is the point. Like with with, with all the, the let's wait and see and we must take stock and all this kind of cliched stuff, uh, Deputy Barry makes a valid point. This is going to cost Irish men and women jobs and those who have jobs may well be back in the scenario they were in the past of taking pay cuts. That's absolutely the position. And that's the same argument I've been making for 20 years, the same argument that Nick, Nick Barry doesn't accept. He, his argument is, that the view of the hard left, is to bring all the edifice down, 
Uh, we'll then have a big debate and then we'll create the new and spectacular free society. Um, we tried that in Greece and look what happened. The real people who have paid the price for this nonsense on a leave vote are exactly hard-working, ordinary people who see, we see the economy dashed, their prospects dash. You spoke about exporters, George. You know, 80% of the net new jobs created in the last eight years have been on the export sector. Uh, those businesses have been hard won. A substantial devaluation of sterling will affect Irish businesses. And Mick Barry and the hard left and the hard right who have together come together to try to bring the EU down with their kind of neo-nationalist agenda will, won't be around helping those people when we've okay. got to help. But the truth uh, of the matter is this. We are better in the European Union because there is certainty and there is ability for the Irish economy to grow. Okay. People like Mick Barry and his, and his uh, right. political background don't want the economy to grow, don't want jobs and investment. They want to bring the economy down where the socialist revolution will then occur. And that's where we've got to start. All right. I let the last bit pass. Don't let to bring a bit of neutrality here. I think the government was are, are, we, are we now three people in agreement um, that we're going to see uh, job losses and if not pay cuts, not pay rises that we thought would have brought many people back to kind of pre-crash norms, are we? It's not a certainty that we're going to see uh, job losses. Now, the pound is falling very, very hard. A lot of the gain, and we've spoken about this before, that Irish exporters have had in the last couple of years was about the strong pound. It was the the story of the strong pound that helped lift the Irish economy. A weak pound is going to help to to bring down the Irish economy or certain to to weaken the Irish economy. There's still a lot of growth in the Irish economy. There are options as well. There's a lot of money in in the Exchequer has some money at its disposal this time. Around, uh, so there is potential. I think if, if capital spending is retained, we need things in the economy. What we don't want to get back to is a situation where the economy slows again, and and we slow everything down with it, and then we end up with fewer houses, and 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 we don't have the offices, if you like, for those jobs that come. I think you're right that the government was cut off guard at the weekend, no, and they lost uh, the initiative. Uh, Deputy Barry, I, I I'll take a, I'll give you a pass on on Brian Hayes because that was predictable party politics, if you know what I mean. But I would ask this question though. I remember Paul Murphy, very much a colleague talking about Greece and this is the way Greece is going to go and they're going to repudiate the loans and they're going to repudiate the EU. I think it's fair to say Greece is in a worse position than it ever was. Similarly the recent general election in Spain where everybody thought Podemos was the great new future they're in third place. So although there is clearly a shift in world and particularly European politics, this will be another example, where is it going? Can you make a, a prediction? Because for the first time in this country, we are seeing a real divide. Yeah, I think you've got uh, huge discontent about the level of uh, inequality, uh, the level of uh, uh, low pay and exploitation in society. Uh, uh, a disenchantment and an alienation from the establishment. And the real question is, uh, who's going to tap into that? Uh, Is it going to be uh, the far right, the populist right, who would attempt to drag society backwards? Or is it going to be the socialist left who will attempt to bring society uh, forward? I think the example in Greece is very instructive because the Syriza government tried to have its cake and eat it. It tried to reverse austerity and stay within the European Union. But you couldn't ride both horses. The EU made it very clear... that if you want to stick with us, you need to implement austerity. They bankrupted their banks and effectively turned it into a third world country. And it shows that while it's understandable that people might want to reform the European Union, in reality, uh, real reform is not possible within it. Final point I'd make, uh, just a brief reply to uh, Brian. I think he's got his uh, messages a little bit mixed up there. The people who are trying to work to cut workers' pay include the government that Brian supports who are bringing not in true. bringing right. in uh, financial emergency uh, uh, legislation to the dollar okay. on Thursday to be renewed and to keep down public George. sector pay. All right, okay. Sorry, we have to go. I'm going to be talking about it, but it's something very close to my heart next dementia. Uh, my thanks to Donald O'Donovan, the business editor of the Irish Independent, Brian Hayes, the Finial MEP from Brussels, and of course Deputy Michael Barry, the Anti-Austerity Alliance and People Before Profit TV for Cork North Central. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie 
I'm joined now in the studio by Senator Aon O'Reardon of the Labour Party. Senator, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Uh, the Labour Party uh, have uh, announced a plan on school admissions. Uh, which I found really interesting because anybody who's got a child, in my case their grandchildren, knows exactly the difficulties with school admissions. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? It's a very simple um, idea and hopefully we'll get cross-party support. I know a lot of parents have raised the issue of not being able to get their child into the local school because their child wasn't baptised, etc. So what we're planning to do, which is constitutionally sound, not these provisions have to be you know, the Constitution is very important. The Constitution absolutely upholds the right of a school to have a religious ethos in the geographical area that the school is situated. Let's take your average local national school, which maybe you have a Catholic ethos, that the school will still have the entitlement to take the Catholic children from within that area. But after that, a child of any um, uh, religion or none would then uh, be entitled to go to that local school. So currently a school can say we will take the Catholic children from this area first and then any other Catholic children from any other area. What we would do with this legislation is to say no, hold on, once you've serviced the needs of the of the uh, denomination that you serve in your school in that catchment area after that is the, is the entitlement of a child of any background to go to your school. I, I mean... It, and it doesn't change the ethos of the school or the or, or right. the religious ethos of the school anyway. I had a really interesting example of that, which I want to share with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, I went to Skullclaughter in uh, just outside Cork in Carrigtool, right? And I hoisted a flag, you know, one of these uh, HSE health promotion flags. And I hoisted a flag and got my picture taken in front of all the kids. 500 kids, uh-huh. 35 nationalities, every colour of the rainbow represented in skin colour and all kinds of religious denominations across the divide from Muslim to Catholic and in between African Pentecostals and you name it. Now, how can Skullclaughter Wirra do that? And apparently there's a problem. Well, 80% of schools, there isn't a problem. 80% of schools can take any child from any um, okay. catchment area and there's no difficulty. There's about 20% of schools in the country where there's a, an oversubscribed situation, oh, for I example. See. So there's a problem that there, you know, there isn't enough space in the school and schools make a determination as to, to choose this child over that child. And in that situation, it has been legitimate heretofore and still is legitimate for a Catholic school or, or any school of, of which a religious ethos to say, we can take children of this religious background from a different part, from a different parish from a different area. What we're simply saying in this scenario is that in the region around the school, which is clearly designated by the, the Department of Education, that in, this, in the circumstance where a child from within that catchment area who isn't baptised or is of a different religious persuasion should be given a, a, yeah. a, you know, admission rights over a child from outside the area, even if that child is of the same denomination as the school. Now, let's look at the catchment area for mm. a moment because, because I have grandchildren in London, Dublin and Cork. I have certain knowledge of these things which I wouldn't have under normal circs. Um, in London, where the catchment area is everything, okay? Yeah. yeah. So if you, if, if you, but the catchment area uh, can move because it depends if where, you know, how many children they get from the catchment area. So what happens if you have a really good school? What people do is they rent an apartment in that catchment area, apply from that apartment, then the kid gets into the school, and then they promptly give up the rental. Um, well, yeah, with school, parents go from to, to huge uh, lengths to try and get yeah. their child into school of their choice. They often try and use uh, the granny's address yes, uh, or a relative's address. Yeah. You know, but I mean, there is a designated catchment area. It has traditionally been the parish. There are okay. new schools coming on stream. For example, I was heavily involved in getting an educated girls' school set up in my own constituency, and the determination as to what the catchment area was laid down by the Department of Education. But what we're saying, and this doesn't go far enough, by the way, our piece of legislation for some parents. Who feel that this, you know, that the uh, every child, uh, regardless of their background, should have equal asset access to the local school. But the, but the constitution doesn't let us do that. The constitution strictly right. protects the ethos of the school, and the, the school is entitled to serve the needs of the, ch- the children of of the same denomination. But what we're saying is that look, um, geography should be more important 
their religion when it comes uh, to choosing between children yeah. on, on the inside or okay. the outside of that borderline. Now, the other thing, though, is given that the school is Catholic ethos, presumably mm-hmm. it has religious education. So when I went to Skullclawhawira in Carrigtool and I saw this enormous cultural uh, difference amongst 500 children, I said, like, well, how do you manage Holy Communion and all the rest of it? And they just say, the, the the Christians go to religious class and the non-Christians don't. Yeah. That's always like, been the way. There's never been I will. I, I, dare I suggest. And, the, and the, va- the vast majority of schools, I mean, I would say all schools, because I am a former primary school principal myself, find the way. They're the most inclusive. Uh, yes. And, and the reason why... I mean, a parent. So why is there a lot of noise about it? Well, a, a parent because the parent just wants their child to go to the school, yeah. the Limberside, and the, the parent is quite happy to accept the religious each of the school. Is quite happy to work around how the school is managed day by day. They just want their child to go to yeah. school with their friends on the street, and they don't think it's fair that the child from five, you know, miles down the road has more of an entitlement to go to that school. Then, then their child has just living beside it. It's a small change, but for many parents, you know, in, in our it's an like, important it's change. An important change. But you should get all parties support for that. Yeah, we we were looking through the manifestos of different parties. This is a new era where you know it's not like opposition legislation in the past, where it was yes. it was it was brought forward knowing it wouldn't get anywhere. You create a now fuss, you and now you have to be you know now you realise that there's a good chance of it getting accepted. And so we did look at the different uh, political um, manifestos from different political parties. There shouldn't be any difficulty with this. It'll be voted on on Thursday, and then it'll become law. Well, you see. Uh, given it, doesn't what other, it doesn't deal with other admission issues now. There are, there are other admission issues that, like one of the great disappointments I had looking at the new Fine Gael-led government was that a lot of the equality measures that we were trying to push through in terms of direct provision and other things have been dropped quite quietly. But there was an admissions bill to deal with other issues around access to schools, children with special needs, travellers, um, different issues like that uh, on, on income basis, but, but which was absolutely, completely and utterly dropped uh, silently by the new Minister for Education, which is a great... Um, you know, cause for disappointment for All me. Right. But this particular piece is a very small, no, it but will make a big change for, for, for a lot of parents. But they, they're still looking at text messages coming in there. It's still people who believe that the teaching of religion is mandatory. Is it or is it not? Um, no, not, it's, the Constitution, again, is very clear on that. You're not mandated to, you know, to receive religious uh, education in in the class now, the school may have a management issue about how where the child goes. The child, you know, maybe sits at the back of the class. There may be a supervision issue, but there's no requirement for a child to receive religious instruction in a religion which isn't because their own. Because what confuses me here is over sixty years ago in Presentation College, Cork, right? There was two Jewish fellows in my class, and yeah. that Pres was the first school to take Jewish boys, first Catholic school. So at twelve o'clock, they just headed off for. A early lunch. Now, I mean, that was 16 years ago when the rest of us were having religious instruction and we were quite envious. So I yeah. just don't get why there's this big hullabaloo and it was brought home to me in the school in character well, I th- that you yeah. can accommodate children of different well, faiths. But you see, that's an issue that arises once the child gets into the school. The issue is that there's a, there's, there can be there's parents... Parents can't get into school in the first place. They want their, their child to go to the local school, which is just beside them with all their friends. They play Gaelic with them or rugby yeah, with sure. them or on the plane on the street with them. But there's a reason why they can't go to local school. And then they see that children from other parts of the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the extended area, if you like, uh, have more entitlement to go to that school I than mean, they have. Yeah. And it's that small change. So, so for example, they, they, they still don't have an equal footing, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, whatever people's point of view is. They still don't have an equal footing with, for example, the Catholic but children the in that parish. Area but, they, but, but, but within that catchment area, they would yeah. have more of an entitlement to go to their local school than somebody from outside that area. Yeah, because, again, like the British experience in the case of my grandchild, the catchment area was literally a number of streets mm. for that school because there was an awful lot of kids living in the area so you were down to about 350 yards from the school yeah. gate no, in terms of a catchment area. Until such time that we can provide you know, a school for every type of religion or every type of ethos in every local catchment area until that day arrives it's going to be pretty expensive. Uh, we have to 
realise that there are people who don't want to change the world, don't want to change the school ethos, are quite happy for their child who unbaptized or have a different um, religious background to go to the local school. Uh, they will work with the school in managing the religious education situation, but they just want to get in, in the school gate in the first uh, first instance, and yeah. that's what our, and our bill is trying to address. To that. So yeah. you should get you should get cross party support. We for would it. expect so. Yeah, we would expect so. Okay. And the vote would be take place this Thursday. So it's it, it, we're trying to be practical. We're trying to you know have achievable uh, legislation that actually you know can, can come to pass, and that's what we're all about. Well, there was Labour Party Centre, Aon O'Reilly, what I think, and I must say, it was a staggering thing to see. It's called Clohorera in uh, Caritool, in New Ireland, in that primary school, because the first time I'd been in one for a long time. The Right Hook, with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic, with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined in the studio... Uh, by Des O'Neill, who's a consultant geriatrician at Tala Hospital. But he joins me because he is a, um, a co-author of the Dementia Care Audit, which has been carried out assessing the quality of care uh, in acute hospitals for people with dementia. Des, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. What were you trying to find out here? What we're trying to find out is, given the fact that a third of older people, the most the people who most use the hospital services have some degree of memory problems or dementia. We're trying to find how well suited hospitals are to dementia care and also to a related condition, delirium. Because we now have 30 to 40 years of the science of dementia care, we know the sort of things that will help ease your transition through hospital, make this place which is already strange enough for those of us who don't have memory problems make it somewhat more welcoming somewhat more friendly to make wayfinding easier and overall to uh, make your transit as quick as possible. Okay now I would say that it isn't a good experience like your audience going to tell me what you found but let me tell you the kind of layman's thing from going to hospitals in the whole of my health mental health anyway it's a very confusing place and there's a whole pile of assumptions made about the patient Absolutely. And in fact, a major spin-off of making hospitals dementia-friendly is those of us who not yet have significant memory problems, we'll also find it much easier. So very often these things are quite simple. They're around better signs. They're around better organisation of care. They're around thinking how do we meet and greet and provide information Even simple things like benches at regular intervals so people who get fatigued or tired can sit down. What do you think are the biggest, what did your audit find as the biggest negatives for for people with, with dementia issues going to hospital? Okay, well, I think it's probably important to start with just a few positives to say that about three quarters of people got quite good assessment. They got appropriate advice around nutrition. A lot of hospitals had access to most appropriate services. But where we fell down was in things like how we design our wards, how we train our staff, whether or not we've got a formal dementia care pathway in place. So, for example, if somebody with dementia comes into an emergency department, rather than being left to the end of the line, they're taken on first and speeded through as quickly as possible. Yeah, in a way, we almost shouldn't say dementia, right? And let me say why I think we shouldn't, because the lay person listening assumes this is somebody like who can't remember their own name and, and don't know the way to the toilet, whereas there are a ton of people who scientifically may suffer from dementia, but... The word confusion, in fact, is is more what happens to them. So when you go into, I, I'm like our accident emergency is a really good example of that, where there's a ton of people, there's a queuing system. Are you going to see the the orthopedic guy, or are you going to see the respiratory guy, or whatever? And suddenly this person, unless accompanied by by a family member, it's pretty confusing. Yeah, except we've now got. 
fairly straightforward ways of picking up people with dementia and cognitive impairment. And we try to avoid confusion for the simple reason that there's two main syndromes that cause you to be confused, as we understand it. One is dementia, background condition, and the other is delirium, where you become acutely more confused. And we'd like doctors and nurses to pick this up. So we've shown, for example... Sorry, delirium now uh, seems to be like the word deliria. So you're conjuring up pictures of people all over the place. Yeah, no, actually, it's interesting. Delirium has two types. It has the one that most people think of as where you're agitated and yeah. confused. But actually, the most uh, likely... Uh, um, presentation you're going to have is what we call hypoactive delirium where you actually become subdued and you don't engage and you settle back and actually that's more complicated to pick up but we've shown that if you give junior doctors training in geriatric medicine they're much more likely to pick up dementia and delirium and much more likely to deal with it appropriately. Okay, make give doctors better training and so on. But there is, is there not? And I'm, there is ageism in our society. So therefore, younger doctors, nurses, uh, whatever they might be, you know, even at a clerical level of admissions, there's a sense that why can't you understand this? Or can't why can't you fill in the form? And I had a thought before you came in. Like, tons of people of a pensionable age have nothing to do. You know, I mean, not everybody wants to play golf or bridge or whatever. Mm. And people want to volunteer. And I often thought that if in our hospitals we had these people in a blue shirt or whatever happened to be with a badge, and they were kind of meters and greasers, that they could very quickly pick up people who might be confused and therefore help them through the process. Now, I think the idea of volunteers is great. And for example, in Hospital, we do have a group of volunteers right. who help with assisting people getting for that complicated journey, for example, to outpatients. We don't have enough and we'd love to have more. So I think that's really helpful. But I think in the emergency department at 11 o'clock at night, you're probably not going to get volunteers to help in this way. And it really is important to pick up people with delirium or dementia quickly. For example, we then know to avoid putting a catheter in because a catheter will only make them more confused. We avoid giving them night sedation because night sedation will only make them more confused. So actually there's a range of simple things we can do but you need to be trained not to do these things that will actually reduce your chances of getting worse. Because it is true that older people whether suffering from dementia or otherwise, are also by and large more mannerly or more accepting. So you can very often find a person who's in their 70s, they come in, they're sitting there and they're thinking, and they are accepting. To, so, And I, I have first-hand experience of this, where that older person is sitting there because they've been lost in the system, their piece of paper's gone missing, which can happen in anywhere. But now, because they don't make any noise, they just sit there, maybe interminably, because they're they're older and they don't want to make a fuss. Or doesn't that yeah, happen? That that can be the case. But can I say, like out of the recession, for example, came some positivity. So one of the things that developed in the recession were these things called acute medical units. And I think one positive thing from the government to say that a significant number of the physicians there should be geriatricians. So I can see already in our hospital where we have an acute medical unit with geriatrician input is already that sensitizes the nurses and everybody else to be thinking about delirium, to be thinking about dementia. What kind of numbers are we actually talking about? There's one thing we know. Without having, you've got the numbers, but but one thing we know in general terms, we're living longer. So by definition, we are going to have more older people with some kind of mental problem. Isn't that so? Well, the the issue probably is that it's probably going to steady state or increase modestly because although we're living longer, we're actually living healthier. We know from very significant papers over the last few years that the amount of dementia is dropping, for example, in the States. And we know that as our longevity increases, our disability-free life also increases. So the key issue is that the problems as we see it with ageing are not in the future, they're now. 
So sometimes people keep talking about the problem we're going to have. Okay. Actually, the problem we have is now. And now is the time to be start looking at a range of issues and, and to start jumping up and down. All right. You, you neatly avoided the issue, being an experienced uh, guest on radio shows. When I asked you, what did you discover which is bad about this system? Okay. What I discovered is we have a very low amount of hospitals that have a dementia care pathway. So only one out of 33. And this is a major difference to the United Kingdom. One out of 33 has a pathway. Has a pathway. So 32 out of 33 don't have a thought-through pathway of what to do for people with dementia who come to the emergency department, how to deal with them rapidly and quickly and so on. Uh, only about a quarter of hospitals have training programs and training's the most important thing is where you value the life of people with dementia because life with dementia is for a living. It's not some, as you say yourself, many people with mild dementia and even into the later stages still valued by us and still have a preserved quality of life for themselves, maybe not for their families. So training is really important, first of all, in terms of your attitude, but in terms of knowledge and skills. A particularly bad uh, mark for us was around the use of major sedatives. Now, it must be said in this audit, it was people who were picked up by non-specialists as having dementia. So they probably were more severe. But compared to the north of Ireland, where we've also done an audit between Tala Hospital, UCC and our colleagues in the north, uh, much less patients with dementia were prescribed major sedatives. So this but is isn't, a, there a, isn't there a pressure on somebody dealing with this old man or woman who's actually been quite difficult, right? Isn't it a simple solution to pump them full of stuff that'll keep them quiet? Yeah, one of the things you learn with dementia training is that the phrase difficult question is the sort of thing that somebody providing a service gives, not the person who has it. And actually what you're trained to do is to find out why is this person not sleeping? Why are they up and about? And a very interesting study, for example, in Norway and Britain showed that if you give people in nursing homes pain relief, you have the number of behavioural problems. So people with behavioural issues are telling us things. They might have a full bladder, they might have full bowels, be constipated, very unpleasant, or they might have pain. So it really is important that we don't see people as being difficult, but that you get the knowledge, skills and attitudes where you say, I want to help this person. And for example, we don't try and impose nighttime sleep for somebody. All right, but there's a kind of a subtext to this, if you don't mind me saying so, that it is possible for older people to be quite difficult in nursing home because, as 75-year-olds like me know, there's a lot of pain going on here. So what I need is pain relief, perhaps, and nobody's picking, not nobody, but it's not picked up often enough. Absolutely. And the other thing is we've got to rethink the design of our nursing homes. I've been, I have a column tomorrow morning in the Irish Times where I'll be mentioning my dismay at modern plans for nursing homes, which are kind of quadrangles of rooms instead of being broken up into domestic-sized units with sitting rooms. So it's no wonder you might get a bit confused or bothered if you're in a very institutional setting. So we've got to start changing our nursing home design. We've got to start looking at how we provide stimulation and CAM, actually CAM may be as important as stimulation and small areas where people can start identifying with the area around them that are well signposted. But you're absolutely right. We had a classic case a few months ago of a lady who went from not having behavioural problems to having a behavioural problem. And actually she had a strangulated hernia, which when operated on, she reverted back to not having behavioural problems. And she could have been somebody's mother. Des O'Neill, co-author of the Dementia Care Audit and, of course, consultant geriatrician at Tala Hospital. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie with Wimbledon beginning today, most of the focus will understandably be on the players vying for titles. But what about the umpires? I'm delighted to welcome Amunala Dasundi onto the show, senior lecturer in contemporary Islam at University College Cork. But perhaps more importantly for this discussion, a former Wimbledon umpire. Uh, Amunala, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. I, you must be pretty upset that we will consider Wimbledon umpire superior to lecturer in contemporary Islam. Well, there you go. I mean, it's just one of the many hats that I try to wear. <laughs> now, you're dead chuffed, of course, as a keen tennis player and a Scot 
that your man Murray won at Queen's, which is the, the build-up uh, competition. Um, Murray, first of all, before we get to umpiring and you and everything, he's an enigma, though, isn't he? Um, he is, but um, I think we should concentrate on the positives, of course. Okay. He is he is the best player in the world. And, <laughs> um, well, he's Olympic champion. Well, that's right. And um, I, th- I think he, he has, a, has a very good chance of winning. But I think at the end of the day, I've seen these players up close. And it is really a, a, a matter of the mind. You know, it's, it's how they actually keep it all together on court that really makes them win. There's really not that much difference in terms of a number one player and a player who's in maybe, say, the top 100. But I think at the end of the day, what really clinches it is, you know, their, their mindset and whether they can hold it all together. And that's, I think, crucial. And I think Murray's got a lot of issues at the moment which are stopping him at times. Okay. Although he's got married, and apparently this makes it... Well, I can tell you, it makes a huge difference uh, to us ordinary mortals. I think marriage invariably helps sports men and women as well. Well, I'm sure this... It very often gives them, not everybody, but it very often gives them a kind of inner calm which they might not have had in the past. Well, it, it could be a, a number of things that could keep an inner calm. I had a conversation with somebody just yesterday, and I never thought about this, but somebody said, do you think that the impact of... Do you remember the Dumblane shooting? Yes. And, and Andy Murray was, I think, at the school at that time. He was indeed. And somebody You're right. said, do you think that affects... And I never thought about this, but, but it could be anything, you know? And, uh, yeah, but I, I mean, it, it, you know, you would imagine mm-hmm. Dumblane, yeah. a, a horror like that, would have some kind of effect on you. Right. I mean, you, you know. Right. But however, I want to go umpiring for a moment. You, right. you umpired at Wimbledon. Now, presumably, you had to go through some kind of selection process. What's the selection process? Well, it was actually during my PhD. And I actually wanted um, to get away from the library and from the books. And at at that time, and I've always played social tennis. I'm not very good, but I'm I'm okay. Um, My tennis coach said, you know, a man, they're they're doing a selection thing in Edinburgh. Why don't you go for it? And I went, and part of the selection process was to, um, you know, stand on lines whilst a match is playing to see your accuracy. But... Really, a lot of it was to do with how loud your voice is. And I have a very loud voice, if you hadn't already noticed. <laughs> and so I actually got selected, um, and they were a little bit reluctant because, I, I mean, I have to say I wasn't very good. It did take me a couple of years before I got selected for Wimbledon, which meant that after my selection, they really helped me kind of refine the skills. Of uh, and doing more junior tournaments. Absolutely. Right? And, I, and I went around Scotland, and I did a few tournaments. Uh, do you get paid for this? Absolutely. Wimbledon, I mean. Wimbledon, can... yes, yes. And actually, I was... I self-funded my PhD and it greatly helped me. Wow, it was it was okay. absolutely fantastic. Now, do you get a nice green blazer and that sort of you stuff? You do. Um, I think they're still sponsored by Ralph Lauren and it was a very nice outfit. You would always get um, measured and, and it was fantastic. You now, would... Wimbledon, of course, and no matter how hard, Flushing Meadows or somewhere, uh, or Fran- Paris, it's not Wimbledon for a number of reasons. One, Wimbledon's grass yeah. and, of course, grass you can hardly find a grass court anymore um, so and the reason that we're all playing at Queen's is to acclimatize to grass right. um, but there is an unbelievable tradition none more so really than you're sitting in the chair and you've got roses uh, lime juice and all this underneath you now when they come to sit next to you and towel down at change of ends do you hear any chit chat at that point, or are they, are they really still focused intently on what they're doing? I think that they are very much focused, and I think that's part of the the game. But they will, they will utter words. They will say. I mean, I, I, I actually didn't enjoy doing the cheer because I think the cheer umpire actually has to do so much more to watch, you know, what's happening all around the court. So I, for me, I was doing it, remember, as an escape from my PhD. And so I actually quite enjoyed just watching that line for, you know, an hour or so. Standing at the end. That's right, yes. And, I mean, we were also, you know, kind of trained not to interact with the players. So a lot of people say to me, oh, man, you must have seen all the great players. But after a while, they all look the same because it's a job and you had to kind of, like, get beyond that. And we also couldn't show any kind of, you know, um, complimentary. I always felt that 
tennis went backwards with the arrival of John McEnroe because mm. up to that point, the umpire's word was law and it was all very gentlemanly as one would expect at right. Wimbledon. And then I always remember McEnroe on famous occasion saying something like, you cannot be serious or words to that effect. That's right. and, and then, of course, he opened the, yeah. the gates really right. to questioning umpires, which then juniors, I mean, whatever about full-time yeah. professionals, we now see juniors at 13, 14, 15 right. questioning umpires. Absolutely. But I think that changed after Hawkeye. And, you know, the, 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 the electronic system which told you yeah. whether a ball was in or not. But come on, at the end of the day, it's John McEnroe who actually sits in your mind because he did something that was unusual. And that kind of like sits and you think, oh, he was an interesting player. And maybe he's set his mark. And whereas somebody like Federer, who's very, you know, uh, conventional and, and yeah. follows all the rules... Yeah, he was a brilliant player, but, you know, we have a different mind when we think of okay. McEnroe. No, okay, I mean, the, because the concentration is intense prior to Hawkeye, and, and you were there and you were looking down the line at service or whatever it happened to be, um, because of that intense concentration in an eight-hour day, you weren't umpiring for eight hours, one presumes. No, no, we had, we had rotations, so we yeah. were on and off. And I think our rotations... Um, I did it for two years, we're for uh, like 45 minutes on and then we were off. And so there's a constant change of umpires because they were fully aware of, of your, you know, your concentration going down. But during our breaks, it was wonderful because we could go and sit on centre court and they, you know, they, they gave us food and it was, it was such a lovely So you would uh, see centre court matches then? Yes, absolutely. We, we actually had um, separate um, areas which were actually for um, officials. Wow. I mean, fantastic. when you think how much in demand tickets for centre court are and how much, you know, people are paying for them, that was that was a great privilege because you would have seen some of the great male and female tennis players. I mean, I have to ask you, and by the way, my guest, you've heard of his PhD, but lecturer now in contemporary Islam at University College Cork. But we're talking about his career as a Wimbledon umpire because, of course, the great tennis tournament started today. It's Amunala de Sunday. Um, favorite tennis players? I enjoyed watching. Um, I mean, Andy Murray, of course, because you know it was a, it was a Scottish and all of that. And um, but I, I I actually enjoyed watching a lot of the doubles matches and the invitational tennis. Uh, Martina Navratilova uh, would would come along and and play, and, and it was just great. There was just there was just so much going on, and there has to be a fun element to this. Well, I know these players take it extremely seriously, but you also have to remember that. They, they do have a fun side to them, and I think that's what makes the sport. Well, of course, as I'd watch less of it now than I did, but as a younger person, I would have watched a huge amount of it. The, the, the doubles usually comes late in the evening, so that's the right. sort of sun is down. Even the centre court probably isn't packed. Yeah. And then it, it, men's doubles in particular. And then there's this, I, what I always think is an extraordinary event is mixed doubles because yeah. there's such a, a huge disparity between uh, everything between the man and the woman in terms yeah. of tennis. I think it's great. Yeah. But you see these unbelievable rallies and right. it's really great fun. Whereas yeah. the intensity, I yeah. think, sometimes of the singles is quite different. Well, I think when you're playing doubles, you, you can kind of work against your, your, you know, not just your opponent, but your, your partner. And, and when you're playing singles, I, I can't even imagine how it must be because they've got to just kind of stay in their head and keep it going. And they can shout and stuff, but it's still a, it's still a kind of like a very isolatory ice kind yeah. of... Yeah. Now, we're okay. talking about what? It's a, it's a famous postcode, isn't it? SW18 or something no, like that? Is it 19? Is it oh, anyway, it's SW, certainly, all right? Oh, right. So um, you you come along, so you get the tube, do you, to, to Wimbledon right. Station That's or something? That's right. And, I mean, the whole the whole area is, is all tennis. And um, I remember... Um, I stayed with uh, somebody who welcomed, um, had been welcoming umpires to stay at her house for a number of years, and she had uh, had a really great relationship with the, with the British right. tennis officials. So, so then um, you you sort of never having been, you you then go through turnstiles. Now you wouldn't because you were an official, of course, but people are going through turnstiles. 
What about these famous strawberries and cream? I mean, that really does happen, does it? It's not a work of fiction. I mean, all the cliches and all the stereotypes that you associate with Wimbledon happen. It is a completely different world. What I love about Wimbledon is that they actually have processed their own kind of unsaid law, which keeps everything in order. And it's also a very vibrant, multicultural, multiracial place. I mean, I was one of the the few ethnic minorities who were part of the the officials. But, you know, you, you actually have international officials that come in and you you know I remember one of the great um, officials was was Egyptian um, and you you kind of you kind of see how you know you talk to them and you say how do you official in your country it was great you just learned I learned a lot I suppose you can't tell me who was the last Egyptian to win the men's singles at Wimbledon can you <laughs> in the in the doubles, no singles. In the singles. Ah, yeah. Well, be, probably before your your parents were I born. Have no idea. Hands up in the air. You, you've got me there. You've well, it's there. really interesting. It was a guy called Yaroslav Drobny. It was ah. left-handed, and and Drobny was stateless because he had he'd left, you know, like Czechoslovakia or then in the Soviet Union. And I'm pretty certain he got an Egyptian passport eventually. So I think it was Yaroslav Drobny of Egypt, I think. I'm sure somebody will correct me on 53106, but I think so. 1953 or 54, around about that kind of time? Yeah. And uh, earlier, a year or two before, he'd been engaged in what was then the longest tennis match ever, I think. Uh, So there you have it. When you're umpiring a course, because you're relieved after 45 minutes, it doesn't matter whether it's a long tennis match or not. That's right, because you're, you're on a rotation. Yeah. Um, and you're 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 on and off, and there's actually levels for um, umpires as well. So you you would start at the bottom level, sure. and you would you would you're out on court points. number nineteen or something. That's right. You start off on the outside, and I I did I did get up the ranks, and but the, in two thousand nine I moved to the states for six years, and so I completely fell out of it. And I, I every year I just get really nostalgic and and wish. And you're I was not going to me. go back. Well, I'm just so busy because there's so many things to talk about when it comes to Islam and Muslims that I'm just <laughs> occupied with all of that. <laughs> Ah, well, next time we talk, I promise we'll talk about uh, Islam. The lecturer in contemporary Islam at University College Cork uh, has been on the program before, I hasten to add, Amunala das Sunday. But we were today talking on the beginning of Wimbledon, what it's like to be an umpire and all that free strawberries and cream. Amunala, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.